We're going to look at uh, Acts chapter 20, if you'd like to look there. Acts chapter 20, I'm going to read for us, starting with verse 17. We'll go down through verse 27. Let me give you a little context before I read. Paul is traveling to Jerusalem where he plans to uh, present an offering that will benefit the church. He uh, will be arrested while he's there, imprisoned for several years. He will go off to Rome to appeal his case. Then things get a little blurry with us. Many scholars believe that he was released from prison. His case turned out well. Other scholars believe he was not. We know that eventually, though, he was executed in a Roman prison. So he's on his way to Jerusalem now. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. He actually didn't want to go into Ephesus, I think, because he knew that he would spend too much time there. Uh, He had lots of friends in Ephesus. He wanted to talk with the elders of the church, but bypassed the city. And because of the news he was bringing, he didn't want to go in. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I haven't hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom, will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Words always come out of a context. A person's life forms the background to his or her words. Paul's parting words to these elders in the church of Ephesus come out of a context. He lived in Ephesus for three years. These people ate with him, they worked with him, they worshipped with him, they hung out with him. They went through good times with Paul and through bad times, like the riots. They got to see what he was made of, had the opportunity to test his mettle. Paul had earned the right to be heard. There's an emphasis in the Bible on earning the right to be heard. It's required, the same Paul wrote, it's required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. James insists that not many should presume to be teachers. Teachers must meet qualifications. Deacons must be tested before assuming their position. And the reason for that's clear. If a leader's life and his words don't match up, his teaching will lack power at best, and at worst will undermine the faith of the people he's teaching. 
Our life is like a soundtrack for our, li- our words. If that soundtrack is garbled, you, you know, the kind of thing you've heard when you've watched old movies and the soundtrack isn't right with everything else, then the dialogue loses its power. The soundtrack of Paul's life was perfectly suited to his words. It gave them power. If there had been some kind of academy of Christian living that gave out awards for life soundtracks, Paul would surely have been awarded one. Now look at verse 18. You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. Those three years, from the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. Paul served with humility, tears, and tests. And he had been doing that for years. Now that brings up an important point. Sometimes we see someone make a great sacrifice. We're talking about bold sacrifice this morning. We see someone make this incredible sacrifice, and we think that it just came out of nowhere. We assume the person was just going along in life, minding his own business, when suddenly he laid it all down in one great sacrifice to God. That may happen, but I don't think it happens very often. When people are minding their own business, they're highly unlikely to sacrifice everything for God's business. The people who make these shockingly bold sacrifices are the same ones who've been making small sacrifices all along of time and convenience. They sacrifice luxuries in order to support ministry. They sacrifice a day off to help someone in need. They sacrifice money they could use for themselves in order to serve others. Sacrifices become a way of life to them. They eventually don't even think of it as sacrifice. They just think of it as life. Those are the people who can sacrifice anything and everything if need be. It looks sun to us, but it's not. It looks bold to us, but not to the person making the sacrifice. He doesn't see it as bold, but as right, necessary, good. It only seems bold to the people watching from the outside. In fact, the person making the sacrifice not only doesn't think of himself as bold, he doesn't think of what he's done as a sacrifice. He doesn't feel deprived. He feels blessed to be able to give. You see a perfect illustration of this in the life of the great Christian doctor and missionary, David Livingston. Livingston grew up in in Scotland, poor, in a large family, but was poised to enter the life of privilege as a physician after his medical studies in England. But instead of a comfortable practice on Harley Street, he chose the wild interior of southern Africa. His bed was the ground. His food was what he could find. He was surrounded daily by malaria, dysentery, sleeping sickness. He was mauled by a lion and almost died. He sent his wife and family back to England for their safety. Yet when someone pointed out, when he was back in England, all the sacrifices he made to serve God, Livingston said, don't talk about sacrifices. I never sacrificed a thing. People like that don't think of themselves as making bold sacrifices. They don't think of themselves as making sacrifices at all. They don't keep a balance sheet in their heads listing all the things they've had to give up. If asked, they probably couldn't think of anything to put on the sheet. They're living the life they've chosen, the only life they want, and they can't imagine anything else. And that's a good thing. No one is more miserable 
and therefore a more useless witness to the truth of Christ than the person who goes around rehearsing all the things he's had to give up to be a Christian. That's a terrible place to be in. It's the very trap of the devil. That's not how the Christian life works. That's a fraud, a sham. If you've got stuck in that way of thinking, and most of us have been there at one time or another, you must get out. Paul says that he served God with humility, tears, and tests. That's how the sentence actually runs in the original language. Sometimes we get the idea that the only way we can serve God is with teaching and preaching and good deeds. We see here it isn't so. God is served when we take our situation, whatever it is, and give it to him for his glory. We can serve in prominence, if that's where God places us, or in humility, in joy or in tears, in ease or in tests. The important thing is that we're serving God and not just ourselves. It's possible to do either in every situation, whether we're teaching and preaching or whether we're in tears and tests. We can serve God in whatever situation we find ourselves, including the one you're in right now, by offering ourselves and our obedience to him for his glory and for others' good. The poet John Milton expressed this truth in the poem on his blindness. Milton was still fairly young, but he'd gone completely blind. And it was a sore trial to him. The, the one way he knew to serve God was through his writing. But now he couldn't see to write, and he felt useless. And he admits in the beginning of the poem that he grudges the loss of his sight. It doesn't make any sense to him. And then he acknowledges I'll just read the poem. God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts. Who best bear his mild yoke, they serve him best. His state is kingly. Thousands at his bidding speed and post or land and ocean without rest. They also serve who only stand and wait. They also serve who only stand and wait. Whether we're waiting or toiling, we will please God with our service if we offer him our situation, ourselves, and our obedience. Right where we are. Verse 20 now. You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. At, at home and in my study and in my office here, I have a score of scholarly books telling us what St. Paul really said. But this is Paul telling us what St. Paul really said. What the scholars say is helpful and enlightening, but none of them have been able to summarize the content of Paul's preaching so cleanly and elegantly as Paul did himself. He's boiled it down to two essential components. Repentance toward God, faith toward Jesus. These are the two things that his teaching declared, he says. That word is a compound word, it's the word to witness, only it's intensified by a, prep, uh, by a prefix. It means something like solemnly testified. 
The same word appears again in verse 24, where Paul writes that the Lord Jesus gave him the task of testifying, that's the word, to the gospel of God's grace. What did he testify? Repentance toward God, faith toward the Lord Jesus. In Paul's mind, repentance and faith were the essential components of the good news of God's grace. He never saw repentance as some human work that preceded grace or was needed in addition to grace. He saw it as an expression of grace, even a gift of God's grace. Repentance is necessary to the life of bold sacrifice. We think of repentance as a painful admission that we have done wrong and a change of lifestyle as we stop doing the wrong thing. And that's often what repentance looks like from the outside. But on the inside, repentance is a change of mind. That's actually what the underlying Greek word literally means. The change of lifestyle is a proof that repentance has taken place, but it's not itself repentance. Repentance is a grace gift that leads people to see themselves, God, and others from a radically different perspective. Repentance is liberating. It transforms values. It changes attitudes. Sometimes it's painful because the repentant person sees how much life he's wasted and how many people he's hurt. But it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. We must have repentance. The person who tries to enter the Christian life without repentance will have constant struggles because he will still see life as a means of justifying his own worth, creating his own purpose, and finding his own joys. And that will undermine his attempts to follow Jesus. He needs that radical change of mind. The person who's repented doesn't need to justify himself. God has done that through Jesus. He doesn't need to create his own purpose. He's caught up in God's purpose. The joy for which he so long searched now finds him. He trusts the Lord Jesus. Repentance towards God, faith towards the Lord Jesus. He trusts the Lord Jesus, not just the Savior Jesus. He trusts the Lord Jesus to rule his life and to use everything that comes into it for good. Faith in Jesus enables people to live boldly. It was that way for Paul himself. He was headed for Jerusalem, verse 22, knowing that he would face hardships and more prison time. But he wasn't bemoaning his situation. He wasn't filling out the balance sheet in his head, listing all the things he was going to have to give up. He wasn't a miserable martyr because he didn't feel like he was giving anything up. Instead, he was giving everything to God, certain he would use it for good. If that meant suffering in prison, God would bring good out of that too. Now, here's a great statement of sacrifice, verse 24. I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, don't misunderstand. Paul is not saying that he placed no value on his life. He valued it greatly, but he valued it. Life, breath, strength, resources, because it afforded him the opportunity to live for Jesus. Take that away from him, 
and his life had no value. Offer him wealth instead of service, and he would scoff. Ask him to trade his task, and with it the pain and deprivation that came along for comfort and riches, and he would turn and walk out on you. His life was immensely valuable, but not as an end in itself. Rather, as a means to serve the living and true God. Now, if you think Paul must have been constantly unhappy because of the sacrifices he had to make, you don't know Paul. This is the man who sang at the top of his voice as he sat in jail. This is the man who was always telling his friends to rejoice. This is the man who admits to facing sorrow, but was nevertheless always rejoicing. No, if you think Paul was unhappy, you don't know Paul. And what's more, you don't understand sacrifice. You're looking at it from the outside again. Sacrifice doesn't seem like sacrifice to those who live in repentance and faith. To them, the opposite is true. A life without sacrifices is abomination. Not because God is dissatisfied if we're not sacrificing enough. Oh, they're not sacrificing enough for me. I'm not very happy with them. But because we're dissatisfied if we have nothing in our lives worthy to sacrifice. We foolishly spend our lives getting as much money and influence as we can so that we won't have to do without ever again. That is not the way of joy, but the way of anxiety and depression. Anxiety while we're striving to get more and more and depression once we've got it. The way of joy is to give your life so fully to something that you can make sacrifices for it without ever feeling it a sacrifice. The way of joy is to expend yourself, not save yourself. To burn out, not to rust out. To think about serving others and forget about serving yourself. To lose yourself for good, only to find yourself in the will of God. That's the way of joy. Now, you'll find some measure of joy, even if what you're serving is power or prestige or pleasure. But the joy lasts forever when you're serving the eternal God. Paul had no martyr complex. He was willing to sacrifice himself for a reason. No, not a reason, for a person. The Lord Jesus. When the denomination in which I was ordained was first sending men and women to Africa, this is back in the mid to late 1800s, the life expectancy of a missionary in southern Africa was something like two years. When those first missionaries boarded the steamer in New York, all their earthly goods were packed in a coffin because they knew they would be needing it, and they'd be needing it soon. You think those people were sad? Embittered by the terrible sacrifices they were calling to make? No, they were moving in joy, full of laughter and praising God for the chance to serve the Lord Jesus, even if it was just for a year or two. It is a horrible mistake to plan your life so that if you're successful, if you reach your goals, you will not have to do without anything ever again. If you've succeeded at that, 
I will not congratulate you. I will grieve for you. If you have guarded your life so thoroughly that you're finally safe from self-denial, I pity you. A life without sacrifices is abomination. In fact, a life without sacrifice is no life at all. The key to living well is not to get everything you want, but to give everything you can for a cause that's bigger than yourself. If you have no purpose worth giving your life, you have no life worth giving. But there's more to it than that. A life of following Jesus is not just worth sacrifice. It's designed for it. That is something the prosperity gospel people, the Lord bless them, just don't seem to understand. You cannot be fulfilled by trying to fill yourself. You can only be fulfilled by emptying yourself because that's when God's spirit fills you. Jesus wasn't like some, some scholars seem to think, going around trying to invent clever paradoxes. That's not what he was doing when he said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. He was stating the plain truth. God has hardwired sacrifice into human life. Without it, you can't live. You can only exist. Now, there are many things worthy of sacrifice. Political aspirations. During these days when we get four or five calls from politicians, it's hard to think that way, but it's true. It's worthy of sacrifice. And so are moral values and a clear conscience and excellence in work and family. Greater good calls for greater sacrifice. And the greatest good, the Lord Jesus and the task he's given us, calls for the greatest sacrifice, ourselves and our entire lives. Now, in closing, let me point out a couple of implications for all this. First, to parents and grandparents. We often try to shield our kids and our our grandkids from making sacrifices. That, I think, is a mistake. Doing without is not a virtue. But doing without to accomplish a greater purpose is a virtue. One that we should instill in our children. Teach them early to sacrifice for some some real good for some greater good. For example, you can adopt a missionary family, set goals for their support, and then as a family, consider how you can sacrifice to reach that goal. You can sacrifice a birthday present to buy a bag of food at the local food pantry. There are lots of things you can do. Just make sure your children are in the decision-making process that they learn to sacrifice. Tell your kids stories of sacrifice, stories of Christian heroes who've given their lives for God in his kingdom. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was executed for resisting the Nazis, as a child was inspired by reading a book called Heroes of Every Day. It contained one story after another of courageous young people who saved the lives of others, sometimes at the cost of their own. So many of the stories I see today are filled with young people who are self-absorbed, pleasure-seeking, and angst-ridden, not heroes. And too much teaching today is about rights, not about sacrifice. 
Is it any wonder that we're producing pleasure-seeking, self-absorbed, angst-ridden adults? Teach your children about sacrifice and your grandchildren. And then this. Paul was Paul, the man who could make great sacrifices because Jesus is Jesus, the Lord who made the greatest sacrifice. And Paul knew him well. Get to know Jesus and him crucified. Do whatever it takes to know him. Spend time every day praying and reading the Bible. Take longer periods to fast and seek God in solitude. Start going to a Sunday school class. Join a small group. But get to know Jesus. One last thing. Don't think of bold sacrifice as something you do once and are done with. Fred Craddock was once talking to a group of pastors about the practical implications of giving themselves fully to God. This is what he said. To give my life for Christ appears glorious. To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do that. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. We think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table. Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But the reality for most of us, he says, is that God sends us to the bank and has us cash in the $1,000 for quarters. We go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. Listen to the neighbor kid's troubles instead of saying, go home. Go to a committee meeting. Give a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. Usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. He hit the nail on the head. It's harder. But it is precisely the long haul, not the momentary sacrifice, that shapes us into the kind of people who are capable of enjoying God and glorifying him forever. The kind of people we want to be. Now let's pray. Oh God, I pray you'll so work in my life and the lives of my friends here. That we can sacrifice anything and everything if need be. And live a life of sacrifice. Without once feeling like we're sacrificing. Catch us so up into you and your work that we lose ourselves only to find ourselves again and the joy that you've given us. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.